Hey, podcast listeners. Let's see what we've got on the blog this morning. It's Saturday morning. Does the sound sound a little different? I don't know if this is going to be better or worse. I'm using my AirPods, my AirPod Pro wireless headphones that have noise cancellation in them, so maybe it's making the sound a little better. I'm really doing this podcast to read my blog to my dear husband. And so if you're not him, then you're eavesdropping on this, and I welcome your you eavesdroppers. I don't welcome eavesdropping generally, but um, I intend for the podcast to be eavesdropped upon. I could have called the podcast eavesdropping on Meat House. That would explain what I'm trying to do here. Okay, now, sometimes when I read the blog, I start with the newest, the oldest post and give them to you in chronological order, but Today, I'm going to start at the top of the blog and read down. I'm recording at 12.48, so the last post went up at 12.40, and I'm just going to start from here and go down, because the first post of the day is kind of something very disturbing, and I don't want to start there. I want to start with, with GOP senators testing positive for COVID. Will the Senate have a quorum to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett? And this is a question from Jonathan Adler, who writes at Reason, or Follow Conspiracy Within Reason. He says there are 23 senators. As of this morning, three Republican senators, Tillis, Lee, and Johnson, have tested positive. This means there are only 50 Republican senators who can attend Senate proceedings. The vice president does not count for these purposes. So if Senate Democrats boycott proceedings, they may be able to grind Senate business to a fault. To a fault, I said. I'm guessing meant to say to a halt. Anyway, Adler observes the Judiciary Committee has been allowing members to participate remotely so it can reach its quorum that way. And someone needs to be present to raise the quorum issue, and that person, one of the Democrats, would be the 51st senator. So there's a quorum without Tillis, Lee, and Johnson, right? It would be the 50 Republicans, and then that one Democrat who would be the one to say there isn't a quorum, except there would be a quorum because he was there. Isn't that interesting? Um, So um, lastly, also under Article 1, Section 5, the Senate can ask the sergeant-at-arms to go get missing senators and drag them to the floor. You might only need one to make a quorum. And in fact, that was done back in uh, uh, 1988 with Senator Bob Packwood. I went and found the this quote from the uh, Senate history site. As Oregon Senator, I'm quoting from the history site now, as Oregon Senator Robert Packwood recalled years later, they found me through no fault of my own by going into my reception room and asking the cleaning lady if she had seen Senator Packwood. And she said, oh, he's down in his office. New York Times reported that the senator thwarted their entry by wedging a heavy chair against one door. He hastily bolted another, but the police had a pass key. Pushing it open, they met minor resistance. It was their mass against my mass, the apprehended senator noted. At 1.17 a.m., the police and the senator approached the chamber's entrance. By prearrangement, Senator Packwood collapsed into the arms of the officers, who then transported him feet first into the chamber. On his feet again, he announced, I did not come fully voluntarily. 
And I said, is this the kind of theater Republicans want roiling the brains of people in the run-up to the election? And uh, to go back to what Adler was saying, that was a footnote. I said, lastly, the Republican senators could try to authorize remote attendance for the full Senate. And they currently have it on the Judiciary Committee. They've already voted for that. But the full Senate has not adopted the rule that you can participate remotely. And in fact, Republicans in the House objected when that's what the Democrats wanted to do. You can see that the majority wants to do it. The minority uh, obstructs. So if that happened in the Senate, the minority would obstruct. And in fact, there are special um, special rules that apply to changing the rules. So it would be a vote on changing the rules. That would be even harder to do than voting on the senator, it looks like. There's some special procedural difficulties. Adler also notes that of the COVID positives, that, that two of the COVID positive senators seem to have caught the disease at the ceremony announcing the Barrett nomination. And I said, this is the literary device known as poetic justice. And here's a quote from Wikipedia, the Wikipedia article on poetic justice. Notably, poetic justice does not merely require that vice be punished and virtue rewarded, but also that logic triumph. If, for example, a character is dominated by greed for most of a romance or drama, they cannot become generous. The action of a play, poem, or fiction must obey the rules of logic as well as morality. During the late 17th century, critics pursuing a neoclassical standard would criticize William Shakespeare in favor of Ben Jonson, precisely on the ground that Shakespeare's characters change during the course of the play. When restoration comedy in particular flouted poetic justice by rewarding libertines and punishing dull-witted moralists, there was a backlash in favor of drama in particular of more strict moral correspondence. So if you like the strict moral correspondence, if you like poetic justice, if you wanna see reality play out like a theater production that sticks to the rules of poetic justice, then you might be entertained if Trump's rush to get Amy Coney Barrett nominated uh, led to these uh, problems. He, he's taking advantage of the, the opening, the ability, the just narrow ability to get her through. And if the rules that he's taking advantage of end up having a hitch in them just enough to stop him, then that would be uh, theatrically rewarding to people who like strict moral correspondence, especially if you think um, Trump is permeated with vice, Trump and the Republicans, then, then you can enjoy the Amy Coney Barrett nomination getting thwarted this way through the lack of a quorum. Okay, so that's the top post. The next post down is a quote from the new column by Maureen Dowd, which speaking of dramatic devices, I observed that she's detailing the narrative arc of tragedy so I think as she describes what's going on now in a column called Reality Bursts the Trump World Bubble, in a moment that feels biblical, the implacable virus has come to the president's door. And when I, I'm going to redo a little excerpt, and then my idea is that this is really um, 
following if you know it's real life so it's not a play it wasn't constructed by a literary manipulator the way fiction is but it follows the structure of tragedy you know in other words you have a man with his tragic flaws and those flaws lead him inexorably uh, to his ultimate defeat so quoting Maureen Dowd the man whose father told him there were only killers and zeros, the man who cruelly castigated others as losers, the man who was taught to fear losing above all else, has been doing some very public losing of his own, upsetting as it is to see the president and the first lady facing a moral threat, and the glee and memes from some on the left were vulgar. It was undeniable that reality was crashing in on the former reality star. Tuesday's debate pierced another reality that Trump had been hawking on Fox for months, that his opponent was an addled husk who would need performance drugs to stand at the podium, and that Trump would stride in like a colossus and clobber him in a trice. Indeed, the ugly, instead, the ugly reality was there for all to see. Trump was truculent, whiny, and nasty. And Joe Biden was fine. Trump was indecent on everything from white supremacists to Hunter Biden's addiction. And Biden was decent at the end. And in the end, the con man in the Oval Office could not con the virus. He was a perverse pied piper of contagion, luring crowds to his rallies and events on the White House lawn, even though he mocked the safety measures recommended by his own government sidelined and undermined Dr. Anthony Fauci and turned the mask into a symbol of blue state wimpiness. It seemed inevitable that Trump would get infected, given his insouciance on the issue of protective measures, combined with his age, weight, and ambitious travel schedule. He seemed oddly intent on tempting fate. So what do you think of that? He's like a tragic hero. You know, if he does go down in defeat, it's a big defeat. Maybe he saw defeat coming. And with his penchant for um, entertainment and drama and being on the stage, on the TV, uh, that he wants to have it play out like a very grand tragedy. He needs to go down. He's even bigger if he goes down. I mean, it's not, you don't say... Hamlet was a loser. Macbeth was a loser. King Lear was a loser. Othello was a loser, right? You say, these are the biggest characters in all of literature. And they didn't win, other than that they won in the minds of those of us who consume drama and entertainment. You know, just Winning another election is a tawdry achievement in the bigger scheme of things. In the huge scheme of things, Trump as the tragic figure. He's a, a buffoon, but isn't, you know, Lear starts out as a buffoon. Uh, I mean, aren't these characters, don't these characters become much bigger by going down to their doom, going along their um, inevitable path? It seemed inevitable that Trump would get infected given his insouciance, you see. 
So maybe uh, it, it maybe winning is to be the ultimate character, to be the main character in history. And uh, Trump doesn't need two terms for that. So maybe we can all win. And that the smaller thing is Joe Biden wins the presidency and Trump wins the competition for being the biggest character in American history. Mm, he's probably got a ways to go, but, uh, you know, uh, is he bigger than Hamilton, who had the musical made about him? There have to be stories about him. And maybe the excitement about building these stories about him, making these dramas, will be bigger if he doesn't claim another term for his uh, for his portfolio of achievement. You know, he doesn't always achieve. He loses a lot, but he's still big. He keeps fighting, right? Isn't that what King Lear does and Hamlet, not that well? And, and who am I leaving out? Macbeth, you know, our Shakespearean characters. But uh, poetic justice or not poetic justice? I guess I've talked about two different literary ideas with relation to Trump. So either there's going to be, but uh, poetic justice and, and tragedy work in favor of seeing Trump go down to some uh, inevitable grand uh, defeat. So uh, if, you're, if you're a Trump fan, maybe you can accept defeat. But you still probably think he's going to win if you're a Trumpster, you little devil. You Trumpster. Speaking of devils, uh, de the word devil, I think, appears in the next post. Well, I'm just noticing this. Uh, I like when there's a... See, I like literature. I like when there's a literary continuity and resonance and ideas keep coming up in different contexts in different posts. Well, since I wrote all the posts... There's reason why that might happen, but uh, I like to see it happen. And when I see it happening, I can sort of manipulate it into happening. Like right now when I'm reading the post, maybe I can find some things and create more connections and continuities and literary concepts. But uh, maybe I'm wrong about the word devil appearing in this uh, post, but uh, let's just see about that. This post uh, begins with a quote from an article in the New York Times called Washington state officials hunt for a colony of murder hornets. The search was taken on. The search has taken on a particular urgency as the Asian giant hornets are about to enter their slaughter phase, during which they kill bees by decapitating them. And here's the quote from the article. Department scientists then tried to glue a tracking device to the murder hornet in hopes of following it back to its nest. But the glue didn't dry fast enough, and the tracking device slipped off just as they were about to release the hornet. The glue also stuck to the hornet's wings, rendering it unable to fly. You, ha you do have to be very patient and wait until it dries, said Washington State Department of Agriculture entomologist Sven Spitziger. But when you're handling an Asian giant hornet, obviously it doesn't want you handling it. He said the department had peppered the area with 30 traps baited with orange juice and rice wine in an effort to catch and tag another live hornet. And I said rice wine, presumably because they're from Asia, like they'd have red grape wine or something if they were from Europe, but they're from Asia. So they put out rice wine to try to attract them. From last, and then I found this article from last May in the New York Times. In Japan, the murder hornet 
is both a lethal threat and a tasty treat. Long before the insects found their way to American shores, some Japanese prized them for their numbing crunch and the venomous buzz they add to the liquor. Quote, is a quote from the article. The giant hornet, along with other varieties of wasps, has traditionally been considered a delicacy in this rugged part of the country, Japan. The grubs are often preserved in jars, pan-fried or steamed with rice to make a savory dish called hebogohan. The adults, which can be two inches long, are fried on skewers, stinger and all, until the carapace becomes light and crunchy. They leave a warming, tingling sensation when eaten, close quote. And I said, the Japanese know how to do stuff. We're out here trying to glue electronic devices to the little devils, and they are finding sophisticated, elegant ways to savor the carapace. I'd like for savor the carapace to replace save the liver in a remake of the classic comedy routine. And then I'd give you the old... French chef, French chef SNL routine with uh, Dan Aykroyd playing Julia Child, having quite a bit of uh, trouble uh, preparing a chicken and, uh, and and saying a few times, save the liver, even as blood is spewing everywhere. Now, this next post, which went up at um, 11.12, is begins with a quote from me, something I just said as I was listening to the TV next to me. Uh, I said, BPP, that should be the name of the channel, Big Potential Problems. I say out loud, overhearing CNN heads yammering after the president's doctor gave his little press briefing. There must be problems. The commentators are urgently, fervently trying to scare up some orange man bad news. I hear the phrase big potential problems and start writing this post. Before I can get to the end, I hear potentially disturbing revelations. The word potential appears over and over. They're so hot to come up with some stories just brainstorming in front of the cameras. We're laughing. Then I do an update. Now they've reported that Chris Christie, who was involved in Trump's debate, prep has tested positive. And I'll just say, boy, if, if you think what are the vulnerabilities and you think being overweight is the big, the biggest problem, then uh, boy, Chris Christie has that uh, problem uh, notoriously. I wonder if people will be so eager to talk about that as they are talking about Trump's weight. The, the Trump's doctors said that he was uh, a little overweight, a little overweight. He's obese. But that's a little overweight. We're not getting really accurate statements of fact from uh, Trump's doctor, who I think is an osteopath. I, I, I was looking at the video on CNN of Trump's doctor, and I thought, uh, my suspicion is Trump hires people like casting in a TV show. It's based on how they look. He likes the way this doctor looks. There are various other figures like that. I mean, Hope Hicks, why is she so beautiful? What, what, how could that be? Um, and some of the other characters, Pence, it seems like he's hiring them for the way they look or is very influenced by the way they look. Um, you know, I, I don't think Trump is crazy, but if he is crazy, it's the idea that he thinks he's doing a show 
and not really the actual president, but some kind of a show about the president, like the Truman Show, some reality show, that it's not real. Now, I don't believe that it's not real, but an awful lot of what he does seems like it could have been put together with that state of mind. Also on CNN, Dr. Sanjay Gupta nails the serious anti-Trump theme. I'm quoting Sanjay Gupta, and I think this is the main theme that anti-Trumpsters should use against Trump. It could have been avoided with basic public health measures. And I said, yes, why wasn't Trump scrupulously protected? I presume he chose not to accept the protection and that protecting the president from disease is not like protecting him from other kinds of physical threats where security experts overruled the president's preference. So um, I think the fact that Trump has now become ill just changes the whole nature of these um, criticisms of Trump for not handling COVID properly. It just makes it possible to argue that, um, I mean, he, he might have been right or wrong whether or not he got the disease, but the idea that he's wrong and he got the disease, it just fits together. It makes sense. You know, again, if you think in those terms, then you're the one thinking like a work of fiction, thinking about theatrical devices. And that's the flaw I was just assigning to Trump. So the critics of Trump are also doing the same thing, including me. Just observing, just observing things. You know, my position is cruel neutrality. So the more cruelty in the neutrality, the better. The more neutrality, the more cruelty. Uh, if you're still listening, you might appreciate it. So the next post, which went up at 8.37 a.m., is called A Clear Recording of That Bird Song. Yesterday I asked for help identifying a bird, but it was so it was hard to hear in that recording. Some listeners thought loon, others screech owl. Today I got a much clearer recording. So when I was out this morning, let's see if you can hear this. So you can go to the blog to listen to the bird song. But let's move on to the next post. This one takes the something that a commenter, J Jackson Jay, said in last night's Sunrise Cafe. Wow, not a world, word about Dilbert. I thought I could return to Althaus for the straight skinny on the bizarre Scott Adams meltdown. Guess there's a lid on Dilbert. It's, and I said, it's more work to pick up an issue that is presented in audio. Am I supposed to transcribe and explain? It's not like blogging the written word where I can cut and paste and edit down to what's important. When people speak in podcasts, they expand and repeat themselves. So even if I were willing to transcribe, I wouldn't get the kind of text I can get from the written word. So there's a big disincentive to blog. As for that recent thing, which I take it as Adams's assertion the day after the debate, that Trump just lost his vote by not denouncing white supremacy forcibly enough, I thought it was the audio equivalent of clickbait. So I had some resistance to it. I'm supposed to explain it and have a reaction to it? Why? Wait a day and everything changed. He explained that he didn't like the jerks of the, that the jerks of the left didn't welcome him into their fold. So he was back on Trump's side because righties, being the unpopular kids, are happy to have anyone halfway like them. Yeah, that's not a ver verbatim transcription. That's just my vague memory after listening to two or three podcasts. Podcasts are evanescent. The written, the written word. Now that's something. Just the other day on one of my podcasts, I forget which one, 
Mead and I were talking about how Trump has built real-world things that have to work and hold up, while the editors of the New York Times could not even get from the beginning to the end of a single column without it collapsing into incoherence. Oh man, just as I was uh, talking about structural integrity, my uh, AirPod wireless earbud flew out of my ear for no real reason and went clattering across the floor. But uh, to get back to where I was, you know, you're not noticing the big gap, but I had to go do a whole lot of things there. But I was saying the column metaphor was noted at the time. You see it when a physical thing like a building lacks structural integrity, but words are so strong, they stay there on the page exactly as written, no matter how rational, no matter how irrational. So I guess I was trying to say that... um, wouldn't it be interesting? Oh, I know. I, was, I had already read that, and I was gesturing, and I was excited by an idea that just came into my mind, that it would be uh, interesting if when you wrote words that didn't make sense, the letters would actually deteriorate and fall apart in front of your eyes. On the, Maybe you could make a, a program that would cause writing to be like this. Instead of correct grammar or a spell check, it would be a vis- visual uh, analysis of your ideas And if they didn't fit together rationally, you would actually see the letters crumble like a a building that wasn't properly engineered, that it would collapse. But but who could judge? How could the machine judge that it was irrational? And maybe all of human culture would fall apart if the irrationality of our ideas became uh, visible. We have to kind of believe in our ideas when they don't really quite... Uh, makes sense, or or we can't really get anywhere at all. And maybe part of building ideas is that you can conceive of things that can't be real. You can, some of our favorite stories are about magic and miracles and so on. So we can make that happen in our head. But in blogging, I said, you can take the text and demonstrate what's wrong with it. You attack text with text. But if you're doing text blogging, it's hard to get at anything other than text. It's a text-on-text endeavor, mostly. You could blog podcasts, but for the most part, that's a mugs game. And then in the comments, Ralph L. Question, (laughs) question Jackson J's phrase, straight skinny. Did, Did you remember that from the original quote? I thought I could return to Altas for the straight skinny on the bizarre Scott Adams meltdown. If I had another time to write this, I might get into the question meltdown. I don't like saying people have done meltdowns. I like that the word is sort of faded and is not as used as it used to be. Meltdown. But anyway, I was Ralph L. questioned Jackson J's phrase straight skinny. He said, the standard term is inside skinny. Though that's actually redundant because the skinny is always inside, and I doubt Althaus says any about Adams. It also implies written knowledge. And I said that made me look up skinny in the Oxford English Dictionary. The relevant meaning, slang, originally and chiefly U.S., which requires the the, is detailed and especially confidential information about a person or topic. The lowdown, also more generally, news, gossip. And I found the various quotes from the Oxford English Dictionary from 1938. 
Had she really given me the skinny of an actual legend from the archives of her race? Or was she wafting me the native poetry of her soul? The native poetry of her soul. And we were talking about poetic justice. It's interesting to see poetry come up here. This is from something called R. Hallett, Rolling World. I don't know what that is, maybe a novel. And someone's talking about whether a woman who knows about her had given her an actual legend from the archives of her race. I don't know, maybe this was some sailor in the South Seas or something like that. Was she really giving me the inside story of an actual legend? Or was she wafting me the native poetry of her soul? You know, in some cultures, including our own, maybe in all human cultures, we don't really keep it straight what really happened uh, and the legends. When the legend becomes the, what is the line from the man who shot Liberty Balance? When the lie becomes the legend, print the legend. When the legend becomes the truth, when the legend becomes the, oh, I forget. But anyway, the idea is, what do we write down in the end? Do we really write down the real story, the actual truth? Or do we write down what is, uh, or do we write down, do we waft the native poetry of our soul? Okay, second quote from 1957 from something called Big War is, I'll cut you in on some hot skinny. And skinny is spelled S-K-I-N-N-A-Y, skinny, some hot skinny. And this is the only one of the OED quotes that has an adjective uh, before skinny. And the adjective isn't uh, either of the ones Ralph was talking about. It isn't inside skinny or straight skinny. It's hot skinny. And uh, then in 1974, from something called rap, I wonder what that was. Hmm. Was it about rap music or was it somebody rapping? We used to use the word rap to just refer to any kind of talking. Um, come, come to lay some skinny on you that I picked up off the vine. I guess that's the grapevine, the famous vine. I heard it through the grapevine. Come to lay some skinny on you, lay on you. That's also, this is full of slang. I guess uh, rap, this 1975 book must have been full of very slang of the day, lay on you, picked up off the vine, skinny. Anyway, 1979 from something called Long Hard Cure has the quote, who killed her, Butler? Let's have the skinny. And from 1980, give them the skinny, but keep the kudos. And from 2006, we get the skinny on the hectic world of the Virgin Mobile Cup and the TV show that's captured all the action. I don't know what all that's about. But anyway, I said, uh, only one of those examples has an adjective between the and skinny, and it's neither straight nor inside. It's hot. So I don't think there's a standard term, which as Ralph acknowledges, would be redundant if it's inside. I like straight skinny better because it's not redundant and it's good alliteration. And because it makes me think of olive oil. She's hot skinny. Right? Straight skinny. Olive oil has a very straight figure, but Bluto and Popeye are just driven mad with the desire for her. So she doesn't have this curvaceous Jessica Rabbit type cartoon body. She has the completely skinny straight body. She's just a stick. And it's very funny that uh, uh, Popeye and Bluto just act like she is the most uh, femme fatale person that ever, ever walked the face of the earth. 
that's uh but uh, uh why she likes them really they're quite uh quite uh, abusive uh, including popeye he's just less abusive than uh bluto but i i found a little panel from a popeye uh cartoon strip it's good to have a cartoon strip just pop up by the natural process of things when we're talking about um scott adams who's a cartoonist but that that's one of these things that just happened that's uh you know uh well, there must be a literary term for that. Coincidence? It's not irony. Uh, maybe it's poetic justice that Popeye came up in the post about Scott Adams. Anyway, Popeye is looking straight into Olive Oil's face. She, looked a, she looks a little upset. I guess he's uh, calming her in some way. And the speech bubble says, don't worry about what he said. You're a okay kid. You got personality. In fact, something draws me to you, just like as if you had magnets. <laughs> I love that. Magnets. <laughs> There's no explanation for why olive oil is so attractive to them. It's just like she has magnets. <laughs> Okay, now, finally, we get to the first post of the day, the one that was so serious that it made me um, not want to start with the oldest post, but the newest post. And this is something I put up at 6.29 a.m. So I put that up before I went out for my sunrise run. And um, it's a it, it's a article in the BBC, Russian editor dies after setting herself on fire. And the post... Uh, title is a quote from her. I ask you to blame the Russian Federation for my death. So that was written by Irina Slavina on Facebook before she uh, immolated herself. And this is a quote from the BBC. Irina Slavina was editor-in-chief of the Small Cosa Press news website. Its motto is news and analytics and no censorship. Its website went down on Friday as news of her death was confirmed. She was one of seven people in Nizhny Novgorod whose homes were searched on Thursday, apparently as part of an inquiry into the pro-democracy group Open Russia. Last year, she was fined for disrespecting authorities in one of her articles. In a Facebook post on Thursday, she said 12 people had forced their way into her family's flat and seized flash drives, her laptop, and her daughter's laptop, as well as phones belonging to both her and her husband. The investigative committee insisted that Slovenia was only a witness in their case and neither a suspect nor accused in the investigation of the criminal case. That criminal case appears to focus on a local businessman who allowed various opposition groups to use his spoof church for forums and other activities, including training election monitors. Mikhail Iosilovich created the so-called Flying Spaghetti Monster Church in 2016, whose followers were dubbed Pestafarians. And I said, here's the Wikipedia article, Flying Spaghetti Monster. There's no mention of Eosilovich. Eosilovich. And activities go back to, uh, and oh, activities go back to before 2016. It wasn't embedded in Russia. But presumably, people all over the world take up Pastafarianism as they see fit. In the U.S., it seems to be a way to make fun of serious religion, to make atheism less grim, 
and to litigate about freedom of religion issues. Try to imagine how it would be used in Russia, where the landscape of freedom is completely different. Irina Slavina was 47 years old, according to Wikipedia, which gives some insight into the seriousness of humor. Quote from Wikipedia. In August 2019, a memorial plaque in memory of Joseph Stalin was installed in Shakunia to the 40th anniversary of his birth. Slavina, in her post on Facebook, suggested renaming Shakuna, Shakunia, changing the last few letters in the name of the settlement. So the result was an obscene word. In October 2019, the e-center of the Ministry of e Internal Affairs of Russia opened an administrative case of disrespect for the authorities and society part three of article 20.1 of the administrative code against Lavina, editor-in-chief of the COSA Press online publication. So there's a self-immolation case. You know, you don't uh, commit suicide by self-immolation unless you want to draw attention to be a protest, to make other people feel terrible that you've been driven to this and to create a, a visual, a dramatic, uh, speaking of, I guess we've been talking about theater. Um, the uh, theater of self-immolation is probably the most uh, striking of all the suicide methods. It's very sad. It's not a way you would just delete yourself from the world. Uh, it's not a method you would choose unless you were trying to protest or trying to create terrible woe in the uh, minds of your opposition. And it, it's odd that this is connected to some humor themes. Her small offense of changing the name of the town to a dirty word by changing a letter. Um, you know, it looks like she's just trading in humor and Pastafarianism also seems to be humor. It all feels very light from an American perspective, but something much heavier is going on there. And to understand the relationship between suffering and humor uh, takes an act of imagination that I can't pull out of this BBC article, but I've, I've put it there for you to, for you to contemplate and talk about and, uh, uh, I guess I have to, I have to end it there. So the trouble with ending there rather than beginning there is that now I must end the podcast with something so dark and so bright as fire. You know, we have fire issues in our country too, fires in our riots in the city, fires in our big forest fires. But, uh, you know, fire is quite a vivid uh, demonstration of nature's power or human outrage, but fire directed at yourself, uh, it's just an unimaginable pain. It's uh, really uh, difficult to contemplate, and I won't try to put it in words right now as I come to the end of the podcast. I'll just close the podcast here. I wish I could think of something uh, more, more uplifting, like uh, getting back to our question about the bird song or, well, I guess everything is kind of dark, isn't it? Trump with his disease, other people with their disease, the struggle for power, but maybe, uh, maybe there's, you know, and I don't want to grasp at the comfort of saying our problems in the United States uh, might seem very dark, very painful, but they're 
compared to the suffering elsewhere. Um, and maybe maybe they're maybe they're quite uh, quite light. You know, I was saying the other day something my mother used to always say uh, when there was any kind of complaint from us kids was, "Well, if that's the worst thing that ever happened happens to you." And, uh, you know, there are much worse things that can happen. So uh, is that supposed to cheer you up? No, I'm not really trying to cheer you up. I'm just trying to get out of this podcast, get to the end of it. So one way to end is just hit the stop X that I see here on my app and let you hear the play out music.